0: So our aim here in this three weeks was to really focus in on this idea of healing and to gain from Scripture a right understanding of God's healing or His redemptive work in us and in the world. And uh, we started out last week with sort of two pillars on which we wanted to build our understanding of, of God's healing in the church and in the world. And the first one was that our relationship with Him. Is the first thing that needs healing. It's the most important healing that needs to happen. And we saw that in, uh, the story of Jesus and the paralytic man, how his sins were forgiven and he healed. And then, secondly, we also understand that our physical well-being is important to God. And so God is not unaware of or non-compassionate about our physical well-being. He does care for our healing. And so those two things are what we're building on. God is restoring to himself a people by healing that relationship, and that redemptive relationship healing has begun, and yet it's not yet complete. We don't have a perfect relationship with God yet. And at the same time, God is ultimately restoring a perfect physical world. And we looked at Genesis and we looked at Revelation last week, and God's redemptive plan includes all the physical world as well. But that is not yet perfected yet either. And so we understand on these two pillars that we in the church age right now, in our lives, we live in the now, but also not yet kingdom of God. And so this is where we are. This is what we learn, is that we live in the in-between. Jesus has come and died to bring near to hand the kingdom, and that kingdom is arriving, but it's not fully arrived. And so those two pillars of understanding as we go into healing help us avoid two errors. It helps us avoid having the Bible say too much about healing, and it helps us avoid having the Bible say too little about healing. It avoids us, It helps us avoid the errors of saying either, I don't pray for healing, or I'm not going to pray for healing, or if I do pray, I'm not going to pray with very much faith, because I just don't believe God heals, on the one hand. And it saves us from the error, on the other hand, of saying God heals all of his children all the time, and if you're not healthy, it's because you've sinned or you don't have enough faith. You don't want the Bible to say too little or too much. You don't want to fall into one error of hopelessness and fatalism where God no longer helps, nor do you want to create this sort of illusion or this spiritual uh, guilt that, only sin and lack of faith stops healing and everybody who's a Christian should be perfectly healthy all the time. We need to make sure we're falling rightly on what the Scripture says. We want to build our biblical view of healing on the whole counsel of God and on the normal teaching and practice of Jesus and the apostles. So that's what we're doing. So so let's look at building on those first two pillars then and, and kind of fill in, if I keep the metaphor going, of sort of building this theology or understanding of healing, we need to fill in the walls and the floors and put some windows in and understand how we build a right understanding of healing and illness from Scripture. And so to do that, to focus in on that aim of gaining from Scripture a right understanding then, and how we are to think and act as Christians about suffering and illness and brokenness in all the forms we encounter it so that we as Christians can then pray and minister correctly. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we always do as Christians in every way. We're we're trying to understand from Scripture how we are now to live. And so this today is going to be a real survey on the topic of healing in the New Testament. And I mean really, like really, really, this is just a survey. Because healing, as we talked about last week, is deeply ingrained in our relationship with God because of this redemptive work God is a healer and he's healing, and so our relationship is deeply connected to healing and is deeply connected in the New Testament the work of God and healing so this is really just a survey we are skimming over the New Testament in order, in order to see as much of the whole council as we can and I want to weigh sort of the key scriptures that we need to have in our biblical view on healing so so for today, stepping back then, and actually I'm just going to pray before I, before I embark on that because we need God's help in this. Father God, as, as we do embark on this survey of the New Testament and other areas of Scripture as well, Lord, I pray that as followers of you that, that you would open our hearts and open our eyes so that we would see what your whole counsel of Scripture teaches, not just one or two verses here and there, but what your whole counsel of Scripture teaches and what was normative in the practice of the early church and what what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught, what your Scripture teaches us, so that we hold in our hearts and in our minds a right understanding of who you are as a redemptive God and a right understanding of how we approach illness and how we approach brokenness in our bodies, in our minds, in our relationships, in our communities and society. Father, we need to know and understand how we are to approach this so that we are doing it obediently and with you in, in the right position in that in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So stepping back then down sort of from the big picture of God's healing, redemptive work that he's repairing the damage from Eden and is ultimately consummating it in Revelation 21 when there will be no more tears and no more crying, and the creation will be remade, remade, and we'll have glorified bodies. We're stepping back from that big picture now, and we're looking practically at the place that healing held in the early church. And so first of all, as Jesus... Jesus' arrival ushered in the new kingdom, the manifestation of, of healing that came along with Jesus was without a doubt miraculous and spectacular. And we looked last week at God's redemptive plan as being both relational and physical, and it's always been. God says in Exodus twenty three twenty five, He says, Worship the Lord, His blessings will be your food and water, and I will take away sickness from among you. God has always been in this business of redeeming our health. Or in Psalm 30, uh, verse 2, it says, Lord, my God, I called to you and you healed me. Uh, Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals the relationship, and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. This is God. This is the God that we worship. This is the kingdom of God that he is trying to usher into this world and bring to completion. And of course Isaiah fifty three five prophetically announcing Jesus says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. And that's the hope that we have. And so certainly the ministry of Jesus as he brought this kingdom near to hand at his arrival was punctuated by spectacular and miraculous acts of healing. And we can just touch on a few of them here. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And Matthew 12.15 says, Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And Luke 9.11 says, But when the multitude knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And this list could go on and on, right? We know that in the Gospels, Jesus came to heal. He came to heal people's broken relationship with God and to demonstrate that and to show compassion on us by healing physically. And so Jesus is clearly the pinnacle of healing ministry and the manifestation or the appearance of the gift of healing. Jesus is the, the top of the mountain, I mean he's the pinnacle in terms of history, in terms of his person as God. He manifested miraculous healing and the gift of healing in ways that is incomparable in that in history and, and from anybody else. And it was intentional. It was intentional that Jesus would be the pinnacle of healing ministry. That he would demonstrate his authority in teaching and show God's power over demonic forces and show God's power over the curse of the world and to show God's love and compassion and to testify to the authority of the person of Jesus as God. And so there was a reason that Jesus is the pinnacle of the healing ministry, to show us who he is, to testify to the truth of what he was speaking, to testify to his identity. But then as you go on, as, as Jesus left the world, healing was given to the church by the Holy Spirit as a gift. And so healing did not disappear with Jesus. At cert, certain people at certain times may exhibit greater gifts in the area of healing. The spectacular or miraculous manifestation of the healing gift tended to continue with the apostles, again, for a similar purpose that the scripture they wrote and the teaching that they spoke would be considered as authoritative from God. We see this in Hebrews 2, verses 3. It says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so in the time of the early church, at the time that the apostles were still, which are the disciples, the disciples of Jesus uh, were then referred to as apostles, as they were still teaching and they were still writing scripture and they were still teaching the gospel, they had miraculous gifts and incredibly spectacular incidents of healing that attested to the authority of what they were saying. And that was deliberate by the Holy Spirit to give them the authority and to give them the credibility to to... uh, teach that the gospel had come and we see in first corinthians uh, that the gift was not only left to the disciples or the apostles but the gift was left to the whole church first corinthians twelve twelve lists the gifts of the holy spirit and and uh, and gives us the shortest summary in that chapter there in verse 28 In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets and third teachers and then miracles and then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And so healing continues as a gift of God by the Holy Spirit. And the gift of healing is expected to be found in the church. We see this clearly in Romans and in in 1 Corinthians here. And... The, the gift of healing is expected to manifest or it's expected to appear in the church as a gift found in lesser or greater measure in certain individuals at certain times according to God's will and God's faith. And we see that earlier in 1 Corinthians and then in Romans 12, verses 3 and 6, it says that God has apportioned these gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and appropriated them or appointed them according to His will and that we are to exercise them according to our faith. And so the gift of healing is manifested, or it appears, in the early church age, in Jesus and the apostles, and it was accomplishing certain purposes. This gift had a purpose in the church. I told you this was a survey. I'm going real quick, but we're going to get to the good stuff real soon. So in the church, these gifts, as they were appointed and given to people, As I already mentioned, their purpose in the church as a whole was as proof of authority. It was to show that the apostles were who they said they were and the things they were speaking were truly from God because they could heal the sick. They could even raise the dead in some cases. And they were to show God's power and compassion. God was pouring out his power and compassion in a unique way in this time to show the love that he had and the redemptive power of the kingdom that was coming. And also to spread the gospel, as we saw in Hebrews 2, 3 to 4, that the things that were told in the gospel were accompanied by these gifts and these signs in order that they may be credible and they may be believed. That's in the church. But then also, personally, these gifts are given, and healing, specifically, these things were given in accordance to and to accomplish certain things with us personally. They were given for our faith, They were given to teach us in obedience. They were for training. They were for discipline. And and I'm going to talk more about the personal application of this next week as we get closer to that afternoon of prayer. And so there were church reasons for these gifts that they were appointed, and there were personal believer, followers of Jesus, disciples of of Jesus reasons that they were given. But for today, clearly we can see that healing is, is a real part of the church and Christian ministry. Although God did heal in the Old Testament, it was not as common as it was in the New, nor was it as widely dispersed. I think only one leper is known to be healed in the Old Testament, even though we had all these rules in uh, the law and in Leviticus about how lepers were to be handled. There was no curing or no cleansing of leprosy to be spoken of in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus ushers into the church and ushers into the new covenant age, healing into the world in a way that was never before experienced. Just as he did the gospel of grace, ushered it into the world in a way in which it had never before been understood or heard. And in fact, when John the Baptist sent one of his disciples to Jesus and asked Are you really the promised one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or are we still waiting for another? Jesus gave the most interesting answer. He he told the messenger that came from John the Baptist, he said, go and tell John. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And so Jesus says, John, are you wondering if I'm the one? Do you not see all the healing that's taking place? Lepers are going to the temple and reporting that they're cleansed and that they need to be processed according to the law by the, by the people at the temple. You know, that's that just never happened before. But it's happening now because Jesus has come. And so this healing is part of the church. It's important to us. It's critical that we understand it. And then healing continued by the apostles. Peter healed and Paul and Barnabas healed and healing was given to the church as a gift. And so... As you are led to pray, as you as believers here today are led to pray and feel called to pray for the healing of others, then please do pray with them and for them, because God may be pleased to work through you in bringing comfort and healing to others. This is a real gift that's been given to the church, and it is active in the church. And so as you pray for people, as you're led and you're called to pray for healing for people, please do. That's that's what next Sunday is going to be all about. We're all going to be praying. Because God may work through you. He may work through you in bringing comfort and healing to others. And in the New Testament, when you read of the woman touching Jesus' hem or of bits of cloth that Paul touched and were taken to those that were sick or of the laying on of hands or the anointing of oil, these were all aids to faith. There is no formula or method to healing other than faith and a right relationship with God. We read in James, of course, the, the clearest instruction in this regard, that any who are sick should seek out the elders and receive prayer for healing, that by their faith and confession of their sins, they can receive healing. We see that in James five fourteen to 16. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And so I don't know, you may be that type of a person who's just called to pray for people who have, whose heart goes out to people who are ill. Who are broken, who are anxious, who are depressed, who are uh, physically wounded, who are recovering from disease, whatever it is, pray for them, because God may be pleased to act through you. You may have the faith to encourage them. You may want to speak with them. You may want to have them come to the elders for this act of healing that can happen. Not because of the oil, not because of the laying on of hands, not because of the cloth or touching the hem. Those were all just things that aided to people's faith. The important thing here, as James points out, is your right relationship with God and your desire to be healed. And God may be pleased to heal through that. But as we go on and continue through the New Testament, we realize that healing was not universally immediate and miraculous with Jesus or the early church. And so we look at the whole council of Scripture and we see that in many cases Jesus healed everyone who came to him, as we saw in some of those earlier verses we looked at from Matthew and Luke. And and there's many other verses. But then at other times it seems he healed some or just one. I mean, for instance, we can look at the the paralytic, the story of the paralytic at at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. It says now, There in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. And in these, in these colonnades or in these uh, hallways, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And then it goes on and explains the healing. And this man went and the scribes and the Pharisees were angry at him because he picked up his mat and carried it on the Sabbath. How dare he after you know, being a paralytic for 38 years? He shouldn't carry his bed on the Sabbath. And then they switched and got angry at Jesus for doing the healing. And so we have this whole story unfolding about this one man that, that Jesus healed among a multitude of invalids. And so even in the life of Jesus, we can see that although healing was spectacular and frequent, it was not necessarily universal. And there were towns that he wanted to heal in, and he couldn't heal in because of their lack of faith. And then that continues as time passes into the years of the early church. Many were healed by the apostles. Paul and Peter even raised the dead, and the gift of healing was given to the church, and many were healed, and yet others were not. Illness and suffering were a part of the early church. Some direct examples in 2 Timothy 4.20 When Paul is talking about uh, his travels, he says, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Here's Trophimus, who's one of Paul's key workers, a man you can assume of great faith, and yet he's ill and sick and unable to travel. Or in Philippians 2.27, you have Epaphroditus, uh, who we know is a pillar of the early church. And it says in in Philippians two twenty seven, indeed he, Epaphroditus, was ill near to death. He wasn't just sick, he was almost dead from illness. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so Paul says, you know, he was he, he didn't die, which was good. But Paul views the healing of Epaphroditus clearly as a sign of God's mercy, but also implied there is that it wasn't guaranteed. Not that it's not guaranteed that God isn't merciful, but that God's mercy may not have been to heal Epaphroditus temporarily in this life, but instead his mercy might have been to permanently heal him in the next life, of which Paul would have been sad about because he liked his friend Epaphroditus and he wanted him around for a little longer. And we, and we know that Paul traveled with Luke, who was a doctor, and he famously advises Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach and his ailments. So Timothy wasn't all that healthy either. And so I think, as you look at the scripture, I think the presence of Paul's illness and the the presence of Luke the doctor and the presence of suffering that is testified to through the whole New Testament shows that illness and pain and suffering is a normal, that is to say, it's a day-to-day part of life in the church, even the early church, where these miracles and this presence of the apostles was there. And that God's healing or that God's redeeming of illness may take different means and it takes its time and God's time to happen. And so it's right to seek after health. John himself, as he writes, says in, in Third John, he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And so here's John praying for people's health. It's certainly right to pray for health. But it is not right to presume that God must work miraculously and immediately for us. That is to say, as as Christians, we should not test God by, say, refusing treatment or refusing surgery and instead testing God for some sort of miraculous healing the way that he's promised he's going to redeem everything. And if, if we are just Christians with strong enough faith and clean enough relationships, then all Christians should be healthy all the time. That would be the other error that we don't want to fall into because God will not be tested. God will not be tempted by our demands. Jesus himself gives us, I think, the right instruction on this particular point more generally from his own temptation by the devil. You remember in Matthew 4 where he is taken into the desert for temptation and one of those temptations was that the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And so by similar example, I think it would be a testing of God to say, well, I know I have this illness, or I know I need this surgery, but I'm going to throw myself into the path of jeopardy by refusing the surgery, and God, you have to heal me because you're the great physician, you're the great healer, I'm a child of yours, you said I have healing, you've done it before, I'm just going to expect healing. And so I'm just going to throw myself into the path of jeopardy and refuse the surgery or refuse the treatment, and God, now it's up to you, you've got to do it. And Jesus says, no, you don't tempt God that way, you don't test God that way. You don't throw yourself into jeopardy and then demand his response to you. And so I think it's wrong of us as Christians to deliberately have a, a theology of healing which says I'm going to refuse all treatment and I'm going to refuse all surgery and, and I'm just going to trust God and He's God and whatever's going to happen is going to happen because you know He's promised this to me. So we have to walk through all of Scripture and understand how it is that we are to approach healing. God can't be manipulated that way. And at the other side, remember we're walking between two errors either this error no, this error. On the other hand, we don't put our hope only in medicine or only in surgery or only in therapy. Our hope is not in statistics. When I went in for my uh, uh, gallbladder surgery, which is very minor, kind of in-out surgery most of the time, so I went in and they told me all the risks and the percentages, and the doctor said this and that. And even when I was going in for the... uh, They were going to put me under. The anesthesiologist came up to me. I'm laying there on the gurney, and they... An anesthesiologist came up to me, and he said, when we do the surgery, we put this thing in your mouth. And he said, one out of every thousand people, it ends up chipping a tooth or something like that, right? So he's giving me the statistics on the fact that I'm going to get a chipped tooth when he puts this thing in my mouth. I'm like, really, I don't need all the statistics. One in a thousand is fine. But we don't put our hope in statistics, right? We don't put our hope in the fact that you know this treatment is successful uh, 19 times out of 20, or 33% of people recover. The statistics are not where we put our hope. Our hope we put in God. In fact, in Second Chronicles 16.12, it says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe, and yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but he sought help from physicians. And so here you have the other extreme. It's like, I don't expect anything from God. I'm just going to go, my hope is in the surgeon. I'm going to find the best surgeon. I'm going to find the best results. I'm going to get the best statistics. I'm going to get that. And that's where I'm putting my hope is in the treatment. And so we don't walk down either error. We don't hope in our own wisdom or our own cleverness as humans. And at the same time, we see that God works redemptively and helpfully and comfortingly in all the different ways of our lives. God has given us good surgeons and good surgeries and good procedures and good medicines. And then on the other hand, we also don't over-medicate or self-medicate through substances either. Medications should not be used outright to avoid, as Christians, dealing with, with serious issues of brokenness in our lives and quite often we self-medicate the pain out of our lives whether it's by alcohol or by drugs or even just by eating or whatever we're just trying to get pain out of our lives and so we self-medicate in order to avoid confronting the reality of our own disobedience or our own unforgiveness or our own guilt or our own anxiety and rather than taking those things to God we just try to self-medicate them out of our lives and that's wrong too medications need to be used rightly alongside biblically sound therapy and counseling, surgery and all of those things. And there's a whole area here of pharmacology which I could go into that we don't have time to in this survey to go into because this is a big topic, healing. But, but obviously that area of pharmacology that it speaks of in the Bible is about not abusing medication or not abusing substances to simply self-medicate ourselves out of our pain. That's wrong as well. And so we see from this that that even with Jesus and even with the apostles in the early church, healing is not necessarily spectacular and miraculous and immediate, but that pain and sickness and illness were a part of the church and that medicine and surgery and procedures are things that we should rely on because God is redeeming creation and redeeming His people through the means of other people. And that His comfort comes to us through other people and through other means, but that we don't trust those means in and of themselves, we trust them only as they are guided by and provided and give us hope according to God. And then fourthly, we don't know God's timing or purpose in the illness and the pain and the suffering that we face. We don't know why we have it all the time. We don't understand all the time what God is doing in it, but he won't waste it. Sometimes we get an explanation of why God doesn't heal right away. And Jesus teaches this to his disciples with the man born blind in John chapter 9. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, a question maybe a lot of us are asking about our illness today, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Somebody must have sinned here, right? Because he's blind. And they're falling into the error of everybody should be healthy unless they've sinned somehow. And Jesus says, no, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but he was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus takes that whole error and he throws that out the window. He says, forget about sin. Don't think that you know this is the sin of his parents or this is his own sin that's caused this. He is born this way under the sovereignty of God so the glory of God can be displayed in him. And he's lived his whole life blind from birth, not knowing what the timing of God's redemption and healing is going to be. And it's so that he can encounter Jesus. And in this case, he's going to bring glory by the healing that Jesus brings him. Or we could consider the Apostle Paul himself. In general, we know that the Apostle Paul suffered greatly under many afflictions and many illnesses to the point that he actually had, as I've mentioned, a doctor traveling with him almost constantly. And with regard to the purpose of his general suffering, Paul writes in Second Corinthians, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. And so here's Paul traveling around doing his ministry, suffering from shipwreck, illness, beatings. He's in pain. He needs healing. He's got a doctor with him just to keep him going. And Paul says, you know, it felt like we had the sentence of death within ourselves, but he understands the purpose of it so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so Paul knew the purpose of his suffering. He knew the purpose of his illness. It was to draw him closer in his faith and in his trust and in his relationship with God. God sometimes explains why he doesn't heal at all as well. And again, we have specifically the the case of the Apostle Paul. He had an illness that would not depart from him, even though he prayed for its removal repeatedly. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this so it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I, Paul, will boast in all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So here's some examples where where God sort of pulls back the curtain and he says, you know, Jesus explains to the disciples, this is why this illness, this is why this disease. Or God says, this is why you're suffering. This is why the pain. I'm accomplishing something in it. I'm not wasting it. I'm doing something better for you than would be for you if you didn't have it. And so we don't always know why God has us suffering. We don't always know why the brokenness is present and God doesn't just miraculously take it away when we know that he could. But what we do know is that we can trust God that he's not wasting it, that he's accomplishing a purpose within it. And it's our responsibility as Christians, it's our job as Christians to trust and have faith and seek out what God is doing in the suffering that we have. And then fifthly, just an observation from all of these scriptures, or sort of looking at the whole council, is that all of these healings are temporary anyway. And we looked at this last week in Romans 8.23. When Paul expresses, you know, in the way that Paul can, the sort of big theological reality of suffering, right? That, that not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as son, the redemptions of our bodies, so what's inferred through all of this is that all of this healing, as spectacular or miraculous or as instant as it might be or as complete as it might be, is all temporary. Right? Poor Lazarus had to die twice. I only want to die once, okay? Like if I die, leave me dead. Nobody come and touch me with something or anoint me. Just, I just want to die once. Especially if it's like from eating too many hamburgers or something. Because then I'm with Jesus, full of hamburger. What could be better, right? So, but but the but all of this healing is only temporary, you know. So so um, Epaphroditus could have been healed. You know, these people who are suffering from arthritis or from from. Uh, from cancer, from, from whatever it is that they're suffering from. And, and I understand the suffering. This is I understand how deeply personal this is. But as Christians, we have to understand that the root of this, any healing that happens in this life is all temporary healing. The final healing is yet to come in our glorification. And so Paul himself even says when he's on the verge of death, he says, I don't know what's better. I want to go and be with the Lord, but there's so much that I can do in the kingdom here. And he was actually wrestling with, man, it'd be great to die right now and go and be with Jesus, but Jesus may leave me here to suffer longer on this earth in order to work in his kingdom. And so from all of this, we understand whatever healing we're asking for in this life is temporary healing and Christians knew this. The early church knew that this was all just temporary because we're all groaning, eagerly awaiting adoption and the redemption of our bodies, which is to come, that we looked at last week, if you want to hear more about that. And so what do we learn then from this survey of healing, these these five points? First of all, very quickly, it's right and obedient to pray for healing, as we saw in 3 John and we see in James 5 right so so fill out those prayer request slips because it is right for us to seek healing it's right for us to pray for healing and put those little slips and those prayer requests in the boxes or or give them to me or someone with a name tag that you see so that next week your illness will be prayed for and secondly it's right to pray continually until we're directed to pray differently or circumstances changed right paul was praying for the thorn in his flesh Repeatedly, multiple times he prayed for it to be removed until God finally said to him, you know what, it's there for a reason. So you can keep praying, but that thorn is there for a reason. And so we may be praying for healing and it's okay to keep praying. You may pray for years for healing in some cases until God directs you otherwise or circumstances changed. David prayed for the recovery of his infant son right up until the day that he died. And then when his son died, he... Obviously, stopped praying. He said, I'll see him later. But he prayed for him right up until the time, even though he knew the judgment of God was upon him. So it's right to pray continually for healing. Thirdly, you may have a special calling to pray for the afflicted by your gift and by your faith. Okay, we don't want to fall into the error to say, well, healing is done, that there's no more miraculous healing, that, that the gift of healing has been removed from the church and God will never heal again. God will act as God desires to act, and he acts through his people. And so if he is calling you to pray for someone in need of healing, then listen to that call. Because God may be pleased to work through you, and he may be pleased to work through your prayer and your faith to bring healing into someone's lives. But he is not obligated to. We don't tempt or test God and demand from him the miraculous because we don't know what his purposes are in all healing. But if you have that special calling, then please pray. And, and we especially want you here next week to pray as we're praying for healing. Fourthly, we understand that God uses all means to heal, that God is a God of means, that he works through his people, he works through um, his creation, and all of the means that God has are all of the means that God has available to work his redemption, redemption and work his healing. And so whether that's surgeons or counselors or doctors or medications or therapies, those things are part of God's redemptive healing. And so we recognize that as Christians, what we take away from this is that we ourselves are part of the redeeming work in physical creation and society. One of the ways that God is redeeming brokenness in this world is He has His church in it. He didn't just grab us as Christians out of the world as soon as we believed. He left us here and we have a purpose, which is to participate in His redemptive kingdom. We are meant to steward creation and care for others, and health is included in that. Right, The practical implications being we're meant to steward and have stewardship over our bodies. We should care for ourselves. We should care for others. Right, We're meant to uh, take care of one another physically. And the same thing can be said of relational or emotional or mental health or social health. We are meant redemptively to be caring for each other. We're part of this healing and redemptive plan of God. We have to understand that from scriptures. And fifthly, healing is not a special test that we put God to or tempt him, as I mentioned before. So we do what we need to do in order for healing to take place, and we trust in God for that to come, but we don't test him. And sixthly, we trust in God's purpose and timing in how and when and if he chooses to heal. There are a lot of things, and this is what we're going to talk about more next week. We're going to drill down on the personal application of this from sort of the the church application. The personal application of the reality of what if God isn't healing? What is God doing in our illness? He may have you on display for others to see, as he did with Job. He may be waiting for the right time for the maximization of his glory and your joy. He may be drawing others, or he may be drawing you closer to himself. God is never just doing one thing, okay? God is always doing a hundred things. And he's not wasting your illness. He's not wasting our pain. So for us as a church then at Lakeside, we want to be a church that joins God in the redemptive work of healing. We want to join God in showing compassion for those who are suffering, to reach out to those that are shut in, to encourage those that are struggling to hope. We want to be a people that are proactively stewarding our own physical health and and quickly healing social and relational wounds through forgiveness. We want to be cultivating a healthy community where emotional harm and relational damage is rare because we are the redemptive and healed people of God. And we want... In viewing our own illness or unhealth, we want to view it through a, a biblical lens to seek where God is working and how he is present in our suffering. We want to bring glory to his name and, and allow him to teach us and strengthen our relationship with him and, and put our trust and our hope on display for others. All within our, will, our illness, God will redeem our illness and our suffering. Next week, we're going to look more closely at how we're meant to live with unhealed illness or how we are to live with the brokenness that's in our lives. And then from that, as we look at that in the sermon next week, we're going to go right from that, what we are to do with our illness and our brokenness, right into a time of prayer together as a congregation. And we'll be able to sit down together and pray for each other and with each other in this area of healing and brokenness and illness and health, all these things we want to pray for next week.